Good, I'd like to ask for your attention. Uh, conscious that for some of you, time uh, has come to probably start packing your bags, uh, as I'm. a few of you will be leaving tomorrow. Can't believe this is already four weeks. So, freedom beckons, at least for some of you. I wanted to say something uh, about a slightly obscure theme in Buddhist teaching. It's, um, I believe, a lot more important, a lot closer to the bone, actually, that one might think when one reads about it. It's the topic of the Iddipadas, uh, something that is usually translated at, as the basis of power, and uh, I would like to translate this as the paths of empowerment. And um, we'll do two things. We'll try to find out what that actually is spoken of uh, in the texts, uh, in what context it occurs, what that might mean. Uh, we'll look at some of the terms involved there and then in a second part we do a completely non-canonical and free-handed sort of um, attempt to map that in terms of psychological experience. So, Idipadas. Let me read you what the Idipadas do or what they're most famous for. The Idipadas occur in a number of places, most famously in the Samyutta Nikaya, where they uh, have a whole section called the Idipada Samyutta. I would like to read you from that section just a tiny bit, and that's what the Idipadas are most famous of. When the four bases of spiritual power, that's the Idipadas in this translator's um, version, when the four bases of spiritual power have been developed and cultivated in this way, a monk wields the various kinds of spiritual power. Hold on to your mat now. Having been one, he becomes many. Having been many, he becomes one. He appears and vanishes. She goes unhindered through a wall, through a rampart, through a mountain, as through space. She dives in and out of the earth as though it were water. He walks on water without sinking as though it were earth. Seated cross-legged, she travels in space like a bird. With her hands, she touches and strokes the moon and sun so powerful and mighty. He exercises mastery with the body as far as the Brahma world. These are no mean feats, as you probably agree with me. So, uh, some of this we will probably recognize in the field of psi, teleportation and telepathy and uh, multiplying one's body and uh, this kind of thing, yeah? space travel. Uh, stroking sun and moon with one's hand, that seems a little you know, far-fetched even for my liberal notions of uh, subtle psychic faculties. Yeah? That does seem to be involving a, a, a rather far stretch of my mind on this one. However, this is how the texts refer to, and these four spiritual bases are inevitably associated with obtaining these powers. Um, There are a number of such spiritual powers. You know? Remember the tradition of Siddhas, or the Maha Siddhas, which uh, in later Buddhism are quite famous. The word Siddha and Iddi uh, are, are cognate. This is the same family. This is uh, also the word in Siddhatta, yeah? the name of the Buddha before he was a Buddha. So that term occurs a couple of times, and it clearly speaks of an extraordinary potency. Let's just assume this is an extraordinary kind of um, power, a potency, um, something that is a foundation, not just as outlined here, uh, particular capacities uh, a developed mind uh, according to our text has, but the Idipadas are that which are the foundation for such powers to develop. And the Idipadas are um, a 
a slightly wieldy concept. Let me see whether I can read that for you. <coughs> there are four of them, and in Pali they sound Chanda, Samadhi, Padana, Sankara, Samanagata. Yeah? Uh, and the next one is Virya, Samadhi, Padana, Sankara, Samanagata. Chitta, Samadhi, Padana, Sankara, Samanagata. And Vimangsa, Samadhi, Padana, Sankara, Samanagata. So, what do we, how can we translate this? Consider some of the compounds, which I won't drag you into etymologies, but one way of translating this is an empowerment that is won by ardency, perseverance, and focusing off. And now we have four different terms. Focusing of zeal, that will be the first one. Focusing of chanda. Before I want to explain a little bit something about these terms, because I do think they are a lot more significance than just about developing the power to stroke sun and moon in flight. These powers, in fact, I believe are powers which uh, are part of anything we uh, succeed in bringing to some degree of success. Uh, but let me go back to the notion of idi. In terms of supernormal powers, there is one supernormal power and only one that is utterly indispensable one thing that is considered a supernormal power and that is completely liberative and that is asava, kaya, jnana. This is the liberation, the complete breaking up and dissolution of the intoxicants, of the asavas. All the other famous uh, superpowers uh, of which we can hear sometimes in the, uh, the, um, the text and sometimes in the uh, contemporary rumor, rumor mill, what this or that grand, grand teacher is capable of doing. Yeah, if you go and live in an Asian country particularly, this is um, commonplace. Yeah, people whisper what so-and-so his realization is, or her realization is, and you know, that she floats on water, or that she, when the Thai, Thai uh, Air Force was making too much noise about his, above his monastery, he actually appeared as an imita in front of the pilot's face and stopped him from going, in, and so forth. And this, you know, that has a, there's a, a strong pull there, and that uh, kind of ambivalence that we find already in the early texts, namely, on one hand, the Buddha is quite down on supernormal powers, you know, he's quite down on the display of supernormal powers, I have to say. So at one point when a monk who has supernormal powers helps a little girl whom he, uh, a poor little girl, he helps this girl to win a contest by, the girl has to go and pick up something on a flagpole. And the monk floats up there, gets it from the flagpole and gives it to the girl so that she wins the contest. And it really turns bad. The girl gets accused of thieving. Uh, the monk, uh, you know, finally turns out what had happened. And then, this is a good monk, you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a, as you can imagine, he must have had some degree of realization if he can do such things. Um, and he was called to the Buddha and he said, look, um, displaying your supernormal powers is basically nothing different from a prostitute showing her, 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 her genitals in front of the public. That's basically the same type of attitude what you're doing here. Uh, this is on the same level. So uh, don't go there. Yeah? At the same time, when we read these texts, we see a consistent fascination with such powers. Yeah? There is a, an ambivalence on one hand, um, if we read these texts, we, we sense, uh, for our understanding, and for rationalist Westerners particularly embarrassing, we sense a preoccupation with such powers. But the political party line of the Buddha is very clearly, uh, this is not important, it's not liberative, and don't fool around with this. Yeah? Don't go into magic, don't go into display, don't go into uh, rousing the faith of the of the many folk, uh, don't try to generate interest in such things because um, this is really frowned upon. So that has many, many repercussions, for example, even to claim that somebody has supernormal powers uh, of oneself. And understand, supernormal powers in um, 
in terms of vinaya, in terms of monastic discipline, are, say, claiming a jhana would be a supernormal power. That would be the lowest end of the supernormal power. So it is uh, prohibited for a monk to claim he has uh, such attainments. Even if he has such attainments, it is uh, a, a serious offense for him to claim such an attainment. If he doesn't have such an attainment, he claims it. It's a disrobing offense. Yeah. So... Um, that's one of the reasons why monks generally don't boast about their attainments. Um, so these super, these idis and uh, powers that go beyond what is deemed to be normal, which is not quite the, the same meaning as we would probably call supernormal powers. I don't, in my personal books, a jhana is not a supernormal power. It's quite possible to do that. And it's quite, there's numbers of people who do that. And it's quite clear uh, with certain conditions in place, this is not particularly supernormal. Yeah? It is doable. But um, stroking sun and moon in flight is a little more supernormal for me. Yeah, both to imagine that and to uh, actually probably uh, do anything that comes close to this. You know. Levitation seems to be a fair degree further out than just being able to still one's mind to the degree of an absorption. So these powers uh, are in one way a fascination. If one reads these texts reasonably neutrally, then one sees uh, that obviously seems to generate a lot of interest and a lot of fascination. On the other hand, the Buddha is quite clear. The, the official line is they're not needed. Uh, to display them is frowned upon. And to boast about is really, really bad. You know? It is a way of gaining the support of the masses, of garnering... Um, material supports of garnering interest and this is um, really um, discouraged and in some way uh, considered to be really uh, one a serious offense and one a disrobing offense which is about as, as, as weighty as something can go in the monastic um, discipline. There's another appearance of these Idis, a very interesting appearance that a, a couple of times appears, and I want to read it for you because it's in a strange way a type of supernormal power which seems highly applicable and it seems to have a highly contemplative value. So I want to fish this out. It's tucked away at the very end of the middle length things in the Indriya Bhavana Sutta. Um, I won't give you the whole story. Uh, but the intro to that story is a Brahmin student named Uttara, um, pupil of a man called Parasarya, going to the Buddha and has some courteous and amiable talk. And then uh, the Buddha asks him what his teacher teaches, uh, whether his teacher teaches something about developing the faculties, developing the indriyas. Um, remember a few weeks ago we spoke of indriya as a spiritual faculty? Indra, God Indra, uh, give as the name giver for something that has power, that has wields authority, and that speaks of a, um, a dunamis, a force. Sometimes this force is the force of a faculty, and sometimes it seems that we are at the mercy of such forces. Yeah. So the Indriya uh, of sense faculties is one thing and their encouragement to restrain our indriyas as is another teaching a big teaching helps us to find at least partial freedom from the power sense contact and sense stimulation has on our system on our sensory system and our sensory system has on top of built on top of it uh, our sensory system has its perceptual system on top and then on top of the perceptual system we have a cognitive system and as is the case in, in, in other situations in, in um, developmental structures some of the later systems inherit uh, properties of the more primitive systems i believe i told you uh, that the sensory system is generally something we fairly unquestionably believe. What our senses tell us, we tend to assume is correct. 
And that makes a lot of sense in evolutionary terms that our senses will not give us an objective reality if you find out what your dog, you know, how your dog sees the world and how you see the world, there will be probably fairly distinct differences in what you what both of you see. But our senses give us relevant information for our survival, our well-being. So that the sense system has a penchant for affirmative belief of what is what is perceived, what is picked up, makes a lot of sense. Unfortunately, we, we, we show the same degree of credulity when it comes to our perceptions. Now, my perceptions are nowhere as reliable as my sense information. And my concepts built on the perceptions, again, I show a certain tendency to credulity. It's a lot easier to believe something than to doubt something. It's a developmentally higher task. More activity is needed, more effort is needed, high degrees of abstractions are needed to be able to maintain something and neither believe it nor disbelieve it. It's easier to just believe it. So some of that, if we do this kind of jumping from one system to the next, uh, we have a kind of a bias towards affirmation, a bias towards credulity. That's why it's so difficult to unlearn things we have believed. So, back to these Arya Idis, our uh, Brahman disciple then tells the Buddha, yes, his teacher does teach something, and this is what he teaches. Here, Master Gautama, one does not see form with the eye, one does not hear sounds with the ear. That is how the Brahman Pasarya teaches the disciples the development of the faculties. Upon which the Buddha, slightly dismissive, says, if that is so, Uttara, then a blind man and a deaf man will have developed faculties, according to what the Brahmin Parasarya says. For the blind man does not see forms with the eye, and the deaf man does not hear sounds with the ear. When this was said, the Brahmin student Uttara, Parasarya's pupil, sat silent, dismayed, with shoulders drooping, head down, glum, and without response. Yeah. Uh, that's the uh, that's the, the start of this little exchange, and then the Buddha goes into his take on how the faculties can develop, and this culminates in the development of faculties for a noble one, for one who has, um, according to the Buddha, completely developed his faculties. Here, our commentary insists that this is an arahant, and then he describes how these faculties are work when they developed. Here, Ananda, when a bhikkhu sees a form with the eye, hears a sound with the ear, smells an odor with the nose, tastes a flavor with the tongue, touches a tangible with the body, cognizes a mind with the mind, there arises in him what is agreeable, what is disagreeable, what is both agreeable and disagreeable. Which is important, a bit here. Even though he is completely free, he still experiences pleasurable, unpleasurable, and things which oscillate or are both. There is no liking, there is no impulse to grasp after it, but still pleasure is there. Yeah. Vedana is still there. So arahats still have Vedana. That is important to know. What they are free of is the reactiveness uh, kicking in upon by most people on experience something pleasant and we want to have it, we want to prolong it, we want to vary it, we want to intensify it, something unpleasant, we want to reject it, pull it away, take our attention back, and so forth. This doesn't happen anymore. Now the interesting bit begins now. So the Arahat, having such feelings, if he should wish, may I abide perceiving the unrepulsive in the repulsive. He abides perceiving the unrepulsive in the, un in the repulsive. In other words, somebody with developed faculties is capable of turning a perception of something unpleasant, or he's capable of forming on the basis of something unpleasant, as a Vedana, into a perception that appears unpleasant. Yeah? He's capable of turning something unpleasant into a perception of something pleasant. That is quite powerful. And uh, predictably this continues. If he should wish may abide perceiving the unrepulsive in the repulsive and the unrepulsive, uh, sorry I missed one. If he should wish may I perceive, abide perceiving 
the repulsive in the unrepulsive, he abides perceiving the repulsive in the unrepulsive. If he should wish, may abide perceiving the unrepulsive in the repulsive and the unrepulsive, he abides perceiving the unrepulsive in that. If he should wish, may abide perceiving the repulsive in the unrepulsive and the repulsive, he abides perceiving the repulsive in that. And finally, may I avoid both the repulsive and unrepulsive, abide in equanimity, mindfully and fully aware. He abides in equanimity towards that, mindfully and fully aware. That is how one is a noble one with developed faculties. So, the term here is Arya Idis, yeah? the noble one's uh, supernormal power. Now that sounds very interesting, isn't it? The capacity of our minds, a, a development of minds that is no longer at the beck and call of pleasant and unpleasant Vedana, to be followed with pleasant and unpleasant perceptions, to be followed with obviously our reactiveness to such perceptions, but the capacity to take a Vedana and form even an opposite perception out of it. Yeah. So take the sensory yeah. In terms of Satipatthana, take the, uh, the kaya, the somatic channel, and uh, experience the hedonic channel, pleasant and unpleasant, and then shift the citta, shift the perceptual channel into according what is perceived to be useful. Shifting, translating, transforming um, in the realm of our faculties, uh, perceptions according to what is useful. To the extent that we are capable of turning something unpleasant into something pleasant, something pleasant into something unpleasant, and finally uh, abiding neither in the pleasant nor in the unpleasant, in equanimity, mindful and fully aware. There's a useful statement here in the commentary, or <coughs> depending on which particular school of Buddhism you follow, it's a, still a canonical book or an early paracanonical text. In my book it's a paracanonical text, it's the Patisambhida Maga. And he says, the noble supernormal power, that's the Arya Idi I just spoke of, explains thus, to abide perceiving the unrepulsive in the repulsive, one pervades a repulsive being with loving kindness. Or one attends to a repulsive object, either animate or inanimate, as a mere assemblage of impersonal elements. In other words, you're either doing metta practice or you're doing dhatuvavatanadi, uh, understanding the discernment of elements. To abide perceiving the repulsive in the unrepulsive, one pervades a sensually attractive person with the idea of unattractiveness of the body, or one attends to an attractive object, either animate or inanimate, as impermanent. So in other words, if you find yourself infatuated with somebody attractive, you're to call upon asuba practices, focusing specifically not on the perception of the attractive, which is what has spoken to you initially, but you have the capacity to turn that perception, what is attractive, and shift the emphasis in your perceptual process so that something unattractive starts to take the foreground. That's one example. If this is an animate or an inanimate object, you're encouraged to acknowledge its impermanence. In other words, to say, this is not going to last, this is compounded, this is put together, this will not make me happy, this cannot be rel relied on. Um, The third and the fourth method involve the application of the first and the second contemplations to both repulsive and unrepulsive objects without discrimination. The fifth method involves the avoidance of joy and sorrow in response to the six sense objects, thus enabling one to avoid inequanimity, mindful and fully aware. Here, um, commentarial statement, although this fivefold contemplation is ascribed to an arahant, in fact, in other places in the suttas, in the Anguttara and Nikaya, this particular contemplation is recommended to people who are still in training. So it doesn't entail arahantship for you to be able to shift the emphasis on a perception from what is pleasant to an unpleasant aspect. That is quite possible to do. In fact, that is encouraged. We are encouraged to do that, for example, with thoughts that are tenacious or uh, hindering uh, our focus or obsessing us in some way. Uh, thoughts that 
bring up particular obstacles. Yeah, desire would be one of them, but also, and maybe even more pertinent is um, perceptions we are haunted by that are unpleasant and they give rise to aggression or um, glumness or they give rise to just aversion. So being able to turn one of these things around seems to be a really useful skill. A lot more useful than stroking sun and moon in my books. Yeah. So <clears throat> um, let us look a little more at these at these four uh, idipadas. So you connect. Yeah, the Arya idi suddenly makes these idipadas a lot more interesting to me. Um, I remember being a youngish sort of monk, uh, plowing my way through the idipada samyutta and being rather disappointed. It's not the most fascinating of the samyuttas you can fish out in the connected discourses. I was hoping to get some more psychological flesh on these, so I kind of tried identifying uh, these qualities a little better. So these four idipadas, chanda, virya, chitta, vimangsa, let's look at some of the meaning of these terms. I think in, the, in this case the term chanda is best translated by zeal. So if we have these idipadas as an empowerment, then it is an empowerment that is won by ardency, by perseverance and by focusing of our zeal. Yeah, of our capacity to hold uh, a vision, to hold an interest, to hold something that we deem to be desirable. Yeah. Desire has a, a whole other, you know, it's had a lot of bad press in Buddhism, but you know, Buddhism is also quite clear that there is nothing, nothing's going to go without desire. Yeah, there is a very unique passage which says basically, desire is to be given up by desire. You do not give up desire unless you have some energy that gets you going. And it's important to get going. You can't get it all right before you get going. So you have to get going. And to get going, you need some form of motivation. That motivation is likely blinkered. It is likely incomplete. It is likely to some degree deluded or it uh, mirrors your horizon of understanding. And if you pursue for a while, you will be sooner or later slightly uh, embarrassed by some of the limitations of your understanding, I certainly find <laughs> a strange, mild, wry smile coming into my face when I think of what got me going 35 years ago. You know, when I think of what I understood of meditation or of practice or what I thought it was about, I just, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I just, I'm slightly embarrassed. Yeah, it did the job. It got me going. But most of what I understood, I was a Zen practitioner then, was basically a misunderstanding. It, it, it was wrapped in neat paradoxes, it was wishful thinking, and it was based on weird notions of myself, of my problems, of what meditation was, of what of our path was, of what the goal was. All of this, I could, uh, you know, I only have very uh, mild, uh, indulgent smile for when I think about this. It makes me grateful that somehow, that energy was there, the interest was there, the zeal was there. What I thought this was about, well, you know, is way off the mark. And I would be surprised. In fact, I would be really concerned if I, if in a few years, what I tell you now and what I think now, wouldn't give me similar feelings. To be honest with you, I expect this to be part of development that we recognize that what we actually try doing, what we try to understand, how we framed our problem and how we framed our path has to grow along with the path. If you're still doing what you're trying to do 30 years ago, um, let's, let's find a moment to talk together about this. Yeah? It's probably not really a good thing to do. So that zeal, focusing of zeal is an important one. You know, there is a That zeal begins generally with a vision, something that I'm capable of holding as a possibility, although it is not real, although it has not happened, although it is not yet manifest. And that such a vision becomes then the object of my interest, it becomes the object of my uh, thinking, and it becomes the object of my wish to manifest this. That's how things begin, you know. Somebody sits around and thinks, um, 
why don't we, you know, we're freezing, it's cold, why don't we invent a heating system? Yeah. Or why don't we build, our, ch our children have lots of smoke in their eyes and eye infections, why don't we build proper chimneys so that we don't smoke ourselves when we're trying to heat? Or, you know, how can we make uh, less of a mess on this planet and let's find uh, other fuels than fossil fuels? Or, you know, this all starts with an idea, generally with a perception of a problem, something less than ideal, or comfort, or something... Um, it can be as simple as having more fortune. Yeah? If you look at the, um, how this world was discovered, you just have to look at the, the, the travel routes around the globe. You know, people discovered Buddhist India, not because English civil servants were interested in Buddhist England, India. They were discovering Buddhist India because they happened to be there for the East India Company and then they got bored on their jobs and they suddenly found out a few archaeological sites. And suddenly Buddhist India in the middle of the 19th century comes onto the map. Because bored English soldiers and civil servants in their free time start digging up Chinese travelers' reports and with those they find out the distance measurements which the Chinese were excellent at and the Indians not. And suddenly they patch together Buddhist India. They find Vesali, they find Lumbini, they find the stupas, they find the holy sites and they start digging. Yeah. All the great Buddhist archaeology in India starts with hobby archaeologists, generally in the service of you know, Her Majesty the English Queen. <laughs> that's what brings Buddhist India onto the map of world consciousness. Before that, you know, we had a few texts and a few ideas, as late as the late 19th century, uh, looking at a couple of these an-iconic images of Buddhist awakening as they are found in Sanchi in the, fairly, you know, in the very early iconographic um, depictions of Buddhist awakening. And in the center of these um, images is often this very lush Bodhi tree. So, you know, there's a great thesis that Buddhism is a sun cult. So there's a French researcher who said Buddhism is a sun cult because there is a few images where Buddha was depicted as a disc of sun or a flaming, a flaming pillar. Or an English uh, researcher found that Buddhism is basically something like a Germanic tree cult because in the center of these depictions you always have this lush leaved tree, you know. Um, and, you know, out of such rather colorful theories, suddenly an image of increasing more accuracy, both textual and epigraphic and archaeologically based, uh, we become more aware of Buddhist teaching and Buddhist tenets uh, of, of the teaching. And that is due to some kind of zeal. You know, these were people who, that started with boredom. And then out of that boredom, maybe interest. And then uh, probably a little bit of obsession was necessary. You know, Generally, a little bit of obsession is not a bad thing. I know it has bad press and so forth, and Buddhists are all quite equanimous, and they just sit there, and the grass grows, and they let go, and they don't attach, and so forth. But frankly, you know, you don't get out of your hammock if you cultivate that from the beginning. Anything good in this world starts with people capable of mustering energy. Admittedly, also a few tragic things begin with restless, uh, impatient, uh, energetic people who do all kinds of bad things. But also the good things start with that. Yeah. Mother Teresa is not famous for her weakness. Yeah. Or St. Francis, or, you know, or anybody whom you might like, uh, or you might fe feel inspiring. You know, all this, the Buddha was not a man lacking energy. This man was teaching 45 years of his life. He was living mostly outdoors. Uh, not all of his monks and nuns were immediately awakened. Some of them were quite obstreperous and, you know, causing difficulties. Um, he had rough time politically. Things were shaky and it got more shaky towards the end of his life. Um, if you look at his effort at establishing a monastic discipline, until his death he fiddled with the monastic rule. He kept rejigging things and making exemptions and refining things. You know, for 45 years of his life, this man has really put forth effort. And we are here not because he was awakened. We are here not because he had insight into dependent arising. Yes, we're grateful for that. But we're also here because the man had tremendous social organizational skills.
If he was just awakened, we wouldn't be here. That alone would not be enough. That awakening would have just been forgotten. It would have been a touching for a few people. Uh, we would have heard a few stories maybe later on, and he would have been forgotten. We're here because he has quite pragmatically, <laughs> you know, instigated uh, monastic communities, which was not the norm. You know, that's one of the things that distinguishes Buddhist teachings from the teachings of his day. He was quite clear. He very early on in his monastic in his teaching career, he started to group his people. He started to organize their relationship to each other. He started to uniform them. Yeah. And it is he, we are here, sitting here, and this is place is here, and this teaching has come to the West because of his social organizational skills, not just because of his awakening. Yeah. I'm grateful for that awakening, but that awakening alone would not have safeguarded you know, the handing down of this teaching. It was the teaching and his pedagogical gifts. It was the teachings, his realization, and his capacity to set up something that could survive him. And for a man who didn't even bother putting a successor in place, this is quite amazing. This is quite remarkable that this has happened. Yeah? I'm very grateful for his skills on that, on, on that front. This is not what he is famous for, but this is definitely what has made possible that you and I are sitting here tonight. And I like to pay that credit. So, he must have had a vision of how this practice, how a path, how a teaching could be held and handed down in time. And those were not quiet times, you know, it wasn't peaceful. Wars, political upheavals, what he valued most, the Republican, uh, you know, these republics in the north of the Ganges, where he came from and uh, which he favored. Uh, it's quite obvious that he favored uh, these grassroots democracies uh, of a republican nature because when he pre speaks about them, we can see that ver almost verbatim he uses what he praises in their societies. He uses this in his monastic discipline as the bedrock for how the monastic community or communities organize their life. Yeah? So it's very obvious that he, he wasn't a royalist, although he got, a, got, got on quite well with a number of kings, and was favored by at least three of them. Um, his heart was quite a republican heart. Yeah. I don't mean um, I don't mean to say that as a as an American republican. I mean to say that in a sort of a Greek notion. Um, so the vision is that part that gives rise to a zeal to manifest this vision, and the empowerment that comes from holding such a vision and focusing an energy that is capable of persevering that vision. Now, any such vision is always utopian. You know, there is always people who say, this is not possible. You're an idealist, you're a dreamer. This is not happening. This is against reason. Uh, why don't we just do what we have always done? Why should we invent things? Yeah. And yet, we do. Yeah, we're quite... Um, we're quite resourceful when it comes to inventing things, particularly um, you know, just wanting precious tastes. If you look at the trades routes along the world, they're, they're the roots of cloth, spices, gold. Yeah. If, you, if you look at how, how the world was discovered, it was this. Yeah. Taste. Just getting salt, getting spices, you know, how much the, e the East was discovered by the West, basically by wanting good, wonderful things, wanting to know where the cinnamon comes from, and, and the pepper, and all this. Yeah? And that's what got us going. That's not a very lofty vision, but it's the vision that basically got us out there and made us discovery. If you look at the Swiss frontier, Swiss boundaries, uh, if you look at this kind of, most of you will probably have never looked at it, and I don't really recommend it as a great pastime, but if you happen to have there, uh, there's a kind of, a, I never understood this, but there's, there's a link between 
you know, the trades route for the Swiss cheese down to Milano and the shape of the Swiss boundary, which kind of has this kind of wedge shape going into Italy. Yeah, there, there's something connected there. This geography has something to do with what was, what was happening in that particular region. Some guys over the mountains selling their cheese down to the big metropolis, Milano. So that's how <laughs> things are shaped. It's often very crude desires that make us, or very crude needs that make us discover things. For better or worse, you know, gunpowder is discovered by a guy trying to find gold. Yeah. Viagra gets discovered by, you know, coming, coming from cardiac research. You know. It's a byproduct of cardiac research. You know, most of great discoveries in the world are um, are side side effects, and sometimes the initial desire is not necessarily saying anything about the worse of something found. You know, those are kind of arcane examples. You know, in this country, um, this country was discovered on the way to India, isn't it? <laughs> something went wrong, and uh, uh, the Americas were discovered. So the capacity of the human mind to hold a vision of something and make this vision so specific that it arouses the wish, the motivation, the aspiration, or the plain desire that energies are being harnessed, speaks here of the first of these itipadas. The empowerment that comes through ardency, perseverance, and the focusing of zeal. The second of the itipadas is um, maybe more clear. It is um, empowerment, ardency, perseverance, and focusing of plain energy. Yeah. Virya. The key term now is virya. Virya is both mental and is physical. It's the capacity to initiate energy. And without that energy, again, very little things happen. Energy is one of the big themes in Buddhist teaching. We have a number of big themes, but one of the themes that comes is investigation, examination, research, reflection, pondering, wisdom. All this comes from, from holding things in different way and scrutinizing things. There's a big theme. There's many, many key terms, many practices connected to this. Another term is virya. How to make emancipatory effort. How to find energy. How to vitalize oneself in ways that we begin to work towards a goal and begin to move. First of all, it's not even important that you have a particularly precise idea where the goal is. First of all, it's important that you get out of bed, you know, that you get out of your blocks, that you move. Once you move, you can start fine-tuning where it goes or you can start pre make, making more precise notions which directions you choose. But before you move, you can't make the right decisions. First job is you get to get energy. You need to vitalize yourself. That's why people who have no energy, who have no power, who have no access to their own vitality, will never move things in a big way. Yeah? They will never start a religion. They will never change a battle. They will never, they will never have huge and great ideas. It's always the people with energy. So that's the first task as practitioners. We need to find where our energy, we need to trace our vitality. We need to trace our energy. People who have little energy, they can become very good and economical. People who have lots of energy generally waste a lot of energy because they're not terribly economical. Because they get up in the morning, nothing hurts, and they have energy, and then they kind of do their thing. People who may, through thickness or through lack of energy, they may develop very precise tools, may learn economy. And people with lots of energy can learn a lot from people with little energy. However, we all need to find ways to vitalize our bodies and our minds. So, virya, the empowerment that comes through perseverance and um, Urgency in finding and in focusing energy is important. Learning to harness our, our juice. Yeah. Getting at our juice and harnessing our juice. You know, lots of energy in all directions is not much worth. But learning to initiate energy. Getting the fire element going. Getting vitality going. 
getting uh, and you know as we know every effort every energetic application um, is basically not just physical you know you can't do physical effort without a mental quality of energy you can't you can't even run 100 yards just on physical effort even if you're such a body yeah you need mental energy so you need the power to harness energy in your mind that's what virya is and the buddha in fact he says at some point uh, when asked what he teaches he says my teaching is one of energy i am a virya vadin yeah there's a few interesting statements he's asked to uh, what uh, what kind of what sort of teaching he does he says i'm a karma vadin i'm a kamma vadin so i teach ethical consequences i teach action i'm a vibhajavadin i'm an, an analytic person i am somebody who um, discerns I, i teach a path of discernment and i'm a viryavadin i teach a path of energy i teach a teaching of energy so that second of the idipadas is i believe quite quite plausible isn't it the third one i believe again is very plausible it is the ardency the perseverance and the focus of focusing on consciousness if we want to get something going there is a type of energy needed to get us out of bed and once you're out of bed there's a different type of energy needed to sit down and start to meditate yeah the energy that got you out of bed is much too coarse and much too willful uh, compared with the energy that it takes for a mind to become still the word here in that third idipada is um chitta yeah so that's the capacity to administer it's the capacity to household it's the capacity to hold balance how to get something that is already running to make it sustainable to keep this going on to balance where energy is needed and where not so you not keep you don't keep fiddling with the gas or kind of when you're once you're rolling once your car is rolling you're doing just little stirring movements little acceleration very little braking or just taking a foot of the gas or you do little movements once the thing gets going you need a different type of energy there's a kind of pioneering settler energy and then there is a kind of consolidating energy when you start building a larger community when you begin to formulate polity and when you begin to learn to administer something generally the pioneers and the administrators are not the same guy yeah founders and people who take a, st- a, a freshly founded business once it is founded after it has been a startup usually these are different sort of people i understand native american traditions uh, have understood you know you have a you have a warrior chief and you have a chief for peace times and these people are not the same people generally one does not a good job in the other one's role um one of the first things the english did after the after the first uh, second world war was over they got rid of their fabulous Churchill you know it was clear to everybody as good as the guy was as he was in power as bad as he will, he will be um uh, when peace time is here you know this is not the man you want to run your democracy with this is not the guy you know we give him a Nobel peace prize in literature and we pension him off you know the the warrior chief is not the peace time chief very good very clear so the type of energy that is coming together that we're focusing on on the third of the idipada is the chitta is i don't know in my books it's it's a it's a subtle energy it's um uh, maybe more feminine energy the capacity to have balance measure um i think of a kind of mothering mothering quality you know you're not just looking after your eldest or after your youngest you're looking to find the balance for all you're trying to find out who needs more attention who can be left to his own devices for a little bit who you know a fine tuning the capacity to hold more than just one particular impulse one particular interest if you want to settle your mind if you want to still your mind you don't just need energy you don't just need will you don't just need posture you don't just need 
one particular focus or so. You, you need a balance of a variety, both of receiving information, feeling things, and at the same time, shifting emphasis very subtly. Yeah. Everybody who does this job in a firm, in a family, in a community, it does little movements at the center, and you know, the whole thing starts to shift in ways. Somebody who doesn't do that, you know, things may just go amiss in a big way. Areas, people get lost, people get hurt. If somebody just is too focused, too warrior-like, for example, doesn't do the caring, doesn't do the administrating, doesn't do the widening of the picture for the whole, rather than just the goal. The fourth of the Adipadas is interesting. <clears throat> Vimangsa, it's the ardency, the perseverance, and the focusing on discernment. Yeah. The fourth of the uh, Idipanas is kind of the troubleshooter. It's the reflection, okay, where did we want to go? What did we do? What has happened? Where have we ended? Are we where we wanted to be? Do we need to fine-tune some of our direction? Do we need to um, make parts of our efforts more active? more efficient? Do we need to call back certain projects? Do we, yeah? It's the say, we take stock. Where are we? Where have we landed? This is what we wanted. This is what we did. This is where we have landed. Yeah? What needs, do we need reorientation? Vimangsati is another term for a form of investigation, examining. Yeah? It's one of the, when I spoke of Virya as a huge department of emancipatory effort, uh, Vimangsati is one term with many others, Dhammavijaya in terms of the Satipatthanas and the Bhujangas would be the, the, a close relative, the investigation of states, the investigation of objects. Vimangsati means I reflect, I reconsider where I am, I take stock with discernment. Yeah? So, if you look at these four types, of energy, these four idipadas. In fact, forget the supernormal powers. Forget even the Arya idis for a moment, yeah? the powerful way of transforming something unpleasant into something pleasant, which would spare us a lot of reactivity, and, and transforming something pleasant and alluring into something uh, perceptually unpleasant, which would save us a lot of grief and a lot of desire, uh, which is useful, but Leave, let us leave that aside. If you look at these four qualities, capacity to hold the vision and develop energy and zeal for this, the capacity to focus our energy and persevere uh, with vitality, a goal, the capacity to, once something is going, be able to maintain, to, to husband properly, to steward properly, to administer properly, and the capacity to troubleshoot, if things have gone out of kilter, if things need readjusting, if things need reorientation, these capacities, you will find them in any project in your life where you have had even a modicum of success. A career, a business, uh, a project. Anything you will have done in your life with some degree of success, you will have had these four qualities in place. Or you will have probably had to develop them somewhere along the line. Without these qualities, it is highly unlikely that you can get anything going. You might buy a fluke, just get something going, but then you can't maintain it. You might have great ideas, but you might never have the power to actually start it. You might have plenty of energy and administrative skill, but you, never, you may never have the great idea to get it going. Yeah? Or you may just meet your first problem, and then you're just kind of lost like the... Yeah. You, you wouldn't have the savvy to fix it or to see what went wrong and what it, it takes to re-engender or redefine your task or your project. So anything that you have succeeded in in your life, you're very likely to find that these four types of idipada were, were in play. Yeah. I'd like to kind of end in this and look at uh, some with a little bit of um, liberty, you could see these four idipadas in four archetypes. First archetype is very clearly is the lover. Yeah? The lover holds relationship. 
The lover holds a vision. Without the lover, you don't have a connection to value. So Chanda, in many ways, holds that vision. And without that connection, you do not think about worth. You do not know what's valuable. You do not know what you feel connected to. Virya is very clear. This is the warrior. Warrior energy is get going. It's loyalty, it's courage, it's capacity to take blows, it's uh, intrepidity, it's the capacity to stay with something. Yeah? Even if you feel lousy, you stick with it. Uh, particularly, don't think in military terms in this, think in soldier terms. You know? Dedication, sacrifice, loyalty, uh, Courage, you know, these are really good qualities that get a lot of bad press because they're associated with military and military power and all this. But there is a deep, deep down, there's a profound virtue in the capacity to be loyal to something. There's a capacity to give yourself, to put a heart into something. The other day, Ajahn Liam was here, and a little exchange, a Thai monk. Who, who disturbed some of you with his friends when he came and looked at this. Yeah. And um, we spoke next door while you were meditating here, and he said something about uh, sacrifice. And we wondered about this word. And it was a little, a little sort of discussion, and the Thai word for <coughs> which the English monk translated as sacrifice is called siyasala. And that well, he translated that as sacrifice, but it also means to put one's heart into something. Yeah? And in Thai language, this is quite close. What you sacrifice your energy to is what you put your heart in. Yeah? And that is, that is our warrior. Yeah? Yeah? The warrior is willing to make sacrifices, is willing to invest his or her energies. Yeah? Without that, very little happens. There is the warrior energy is needed when it comes to coalesce some good intentions and galvanize them into a decision, into a determination. I don't know how it is in your life, but in my life I have plenty of good intentions who somehow never quite manifest. Yeah? It seems that good intentions need another stage before they actually uh, get forged into a decision or into a determination. So the warrior is capable of doing the lover's vision and actually commit to those visions and actually say, this one isn't just a nice dream. This one we're actually going to follow through. This one we're going to do. Yeah, whatever that is. This is my invention. I'm going to try to get patented. This one I'm going to marry. This one I'm going to really stick with. Yeah. That's a warrior type energy. Yeah. That's not just the visionary, the utopist, the dreamer. Yeah. The lover can be a dreamer. He can just kind of keep loving things and that isn't holding necessarily much commitment. You can just run after your dreams, many dreams, or just leave them as dreams. The warrior commits. The warrior goes. The warrior risks. The warrior stays there even if the going gets tough. And the warrior is loyal to those values of the dreamer or the lover. The next one is obviously the king, or if you want to do this, is the queen. Is that capacity that sees the whole picture. The warrior doesn't see the whole picture. Warrior just goes. He's on mission. He's on duty. He's got a fairly clear line. And that clear clarity of line is necessary. The king or the queen, they hold the cosmos. They hold the whole. They hold the empire. Now, in that empire, you have various things. They're not just holding the advertisement department. They're also holding the accountancy department. Usually, these two things don't talk the same language. So, if you happen to be in your uh, kingly or queenly position in this, you know you need to make sure that these people talk with each other. You need to sh make sure that you hold their mutual interests. Because in the eyes of the one group, the other is just expensive. In the eyes of the other group, the other ones are just stingy, holding purse strings and uncreative lot, you know, obsessed with little figures and black marks on paper. So you need to make sure that you hold both of their realities. 
They can be both quite useful. So the king or the queen has the big picture. He knows how to fine-tune. He knows how to administer. He knows how to hold the realm. And that realm may need a lot. It may need an army, but it also may need building bridges and digging wells and this kind of thing. The third one, or the fourth one, is the magus. Yeah? Is the, the one who understands how things function. It's the wise woman, or is the magician. Um, it's somebody who knows the mechanics of things. Somebody who knows how things work. Somebody who is capable of acting as a troubleshooter. Somebody who has particularly specific skills that can be applied and called upon and used. Somebody who is capable of fixing something. Somebody who is capable of figuring something out. So the, the magician has a particular role. And obviously, you need all of them, you know. A lover without a warrior and without a king and without a, with, without a magician basically is just a dreamer. Yeah, it just kind of keeps dreaming. Nothing ever happens. It's just one nice, lovely dream, one great, inspiring idea after the other. Nothing ever gets done. A warrior without the value and without the king or a queen and without the magician is basically a killer. Yeah, it's just kind of a Ronin sort of thing. A rulerless samurai running the country, endangering everybody, purposeless and is highly, highly dangerous, useless. A king without energy and a king without uh, a magician and a king without values is just a little tyrant, you know, maybe a small tyrant, maybe a big despot. But a king needs these guys, or he's completely impotent. If he doesn't have energy, and if he doesn't have savvy, and if he doesn't have values, he is just a little petty sort of, um, I'm sure you have a name for this in England. It's sort of a, he sits there and has his balcony garden and reigns over his puny little empire. And a magician without the others, without values, and without the, without the bigger connection of uh, the king's big realm, uh, a magician is just generally um, some cynical geek maybe, some, some obsessed little nerd, some dangerous, um, maybe intelligent and possibly destructive, most often simply useless kind of smart aleck who knows things but doesn't actually have any co contact to the rest. His particular skill is lost and at best uh, harmless and uh, obsessional and at worst really dangerous and uh, uh, potentially um, toxic. Yeah. So these, these characters, you can see the parallels, isn't it, between Chanda and the lover, between Virya and the warrior, between Chitta and the king and the queen, between Vimanksa and the Magus. I think it's easy to see. Now... I ask you, what role do you play in your life? What roles do you delegate? In which roles are you in your jobs, in your families, amongst your friends? Are you the one who has the great ideas other people run with? Yeah. Are you the guy who uh, gets other people's great ideas off the ground and makes them happen? Are you the guy who uh, helps people who have great ideas actually run the business and make this commercially viable or uh, in terms of makes this communally viable. Yeah. Or are you the guys who gets in and fixes things? You know? Are you fixing your friends' computers, social lives, relational lives? Are you the one who always has the recipes? Are you the one who uh, spots where the leakage is in a system? Uh, are you the ones how to get rid of the carrot fly when you visit a friend? Or, you know, this would be a Magus job. You will probably find that you favor particular tasks. If you look at yourself, in your life, in your jobs, in your relationships, you will probably have a tendency to gravitate to one thing and maybe even equally discernible tendency to avoid certain areas. Yeah. And that's, that's the place where you probably, um, where our teaching here tells you to start developing other parts of your life, other idipadas. Well, instead of fixing everything for other people, starting to go back to your own vision, writing your own book, you know, or starting your own project, 
or uh, administering your own gardens. Ponder this for a moment um, and uh, ponder also what you don't do, what you always call in for help, what you import, what, which tasks you outsource. Yeah. And where you keep finding yourself, you know, what your family dynamic is, this is useful to know. What role you have played back home. Oh, maybe you've made a job out of this. Many of us make jobs, you know, out of stuff we just had to develop. This is not bad. It's not the worst way to do it. It's just good to know how this works. It's good to know where you have habitually put your chips, where you tendentionally think this is the bit I'm at home in. And you may have a bigger choice than you are aware of. It may be really useful to not do what you're good at, to develop something you may be less good at, or you may feel dependent on others, or you may feel, I'm so grateful she's doing this for me. Yeah, so I'll leave that with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.